I should like to call attention once more to the words which are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verses 22, 23, and 24. Verses 22 to 24 in the fifth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. We come back to this uh, statement because uh, we were only able last Sunday morning to look at one aspect of it in detail. You remember that it's a part of the Apostle's general exhortation to all Christian people to submit themselves one to another in the fear of Christ. He is addressing people who are filled with the Spirit and reminding them that this is one of the ways in which they show that they are filled with the Spirit and not drunk with wine wherein is excess, that they are able to control themselves in their singing in their speaking to one another and in all they do. And now he's coming to these uh, particular illustrations. And he takes first uh, the case of the wife and uh, the husband. Now we have reminded ourselves that the apostle considers this great and most important subject of marriage in uh, his own way, in a typically Christian manner. His whole dealing with it, as we've seen, is so unlike the world not realizing what marriage really is and what a wonderful privilege it is. The world treats this matter as a joke. But not so the apostle, not so the Bible anywhere. It lifts it to another level altogether. Now here the apostle is concerned particularly, of course, with this question of subjecting ourselves one to another. And he exhorts the wives to submit and to subject themselves to their own husbands. And uh, we have seen that he gives us uh, a great and a grand motive for doing this, for all these things. And it is that we really do it as unto Christ. It's a part of our duty as Christians. It is an expression of our deep desire to be well-pleasing in his sight and to do that which pleases him. But then the apostle goes on to give us two great particular reasons why this should be done. Now, last Sunday morning we considered the first, which is that it is a matter of the order of nature. He says, the, uh, for the husband, he says, is the head of the wife. And we saw that that was the great teaching of the Old Testament, that God ordained it like that uh, when he made men and women at the beginning. And we see how the New Testament not only confirms it, but constantly goes back to that original ordinance of God. So that here we are dealing with something that is basic and fundamental to the whole of life, to the whole of man's life on earth, and to his well-being. Now, in all this, of course, we have not yet been saying anything that is peculiarly and specifically Christian. That was the teaching of the Old Testament. That is something that everybody should recognize, whether they're Christians or not. This is God's ordinance with regard to the whole of life. As we recognize the family, we should recognize this. The God who ordained the family ordained marriage. The God who ordained the state 
uh, ordained marriage. And as we should submit ourselves to the state, so we should pay heed to this uh, fundamental ordinance of God with regard to the relative positions of husband and wife and the relationship that should subsist uh, between them. Now, all that I say so far is general, and we must never lose sight of that. The fact that we are Christians does not mean that we have no interest in what is general. The fact we are Christian doesn't mean that we don't need the Old Testament. It is there still as a foundation. We build upon it. So we take that which the Apostle puts first. But now he goes on to his second reason. And this, of course, is a peculiarly Christian one. The husband is the head of the wife. Then comes the Christian. Even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, of course, this takes us further. It doesn't do away with the first, but it adds to it. And indeed, it helps us to understand the first. That is what the Christian faith does with regard to the whole of life. It is only a Christian who can rarely appreciate life in general in this world. I mean by that that it's only a Christian in the last analysis that can rarely enjoy nature. The Christian sees nature in a different way. There's a newness about it. He doesn't merely see the thing in and of itself. He sees the great creator and the wonder of his ways, the variety, the color, and all these things. So in other words, uh, being a Christian means that your whole outlook upon life is enriched. doesn't matter what it is. Every gift that man has and he manifests can only be truly appreciated by the Christian. He sees with a greater depth. He's got a, a fuller understanding. In other words, I'm saying that what the Christian message does is not only to add to what we had before, but it greatly enriches what we had before and gives us a deeper insight into it. Now, here we shall find that this specifically Christian edition it does help us to understand what the order of nature had already laid down. But uh, that further, on top of it, it adds uh, a new quality, another uh, aspect, as it were, another emphasis to it all. Well, now, here is the statement. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Now, we must pause uh, for a moment with this statement to make uh, certain comments which obviously arise at once. This, uh, which we are looking at this morning, is something that only a Christian can understand. Nobody else can. A man who doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and who doesn't know the way of salvation, he cannot obviously know anything at all about what it means to say that Christ is the head of the body, which is the church. It's gibberish to him, nonsense, doesn't understand it at all. Well, therefore, such a person cannot understand this specifically Christian view of marriage. You see, here is a deduction from Christian doctrine. This is a deduction from the Christian doctrine of the church. And therefore, if a man doesn't understand the Christian doctrine of the church, according to the apostle, he cannot finally understand the Christian view of marriage, which immediately leads us to draw certain conclusions. The first is this. 
that obviously a Christian should never marry a non-Christian. We are told that, of course, specifically in the second epistle to the Corinthians, you remember in chapter 6, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The 14th verse of the 6th chapter of 2 Corinthians. That is undoubtedly a reference to this question of marriage. And if we needed a reason for accepting that, well, here it is. You see, the position you'd have would be this, that one of the people getting married would have this exalted Christian view of marriage and the other would know nothing at all about it. Well, already I say there is a defect in the marriage. They're not one in it. They're not entering into it in the same way. There is already a division. The one is the one has something the other hasn't got. There is already the seed of discord, as the apostle proves in that same statement in 2 Corinthians 6. Then the second deduction I would draw is this one. That a Christian service in connection with marriage is only appropriate for Christians. Now, here's a very large subject. It's a part of the whole subject of the discipline of the Christian church. Uh, the position uh, has become quite chaotic, of course, and the people who know nothing at all about Christianity are given a Christian service, and this is read out about the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and it's meaningless. Well, I'm deducing that it shouldn't be done. You don't uh, teach high Christian doctrine to those who are not Christians, you preach to them nothing but repentance and the need of belief. They can't possibly understand this. You've got to be in the Christian life because before you can understand this. I'm arguing, therefore, that a Christian service at a wedding should be reserved only and exclusively for Christians. It is to make a farce of it to have such a service for anybody else. But thirdly, I would deduce this that such a service is appropriate and right and should be taken and conducted when Christian people are being married. Now, you know what I mean by that. Some of the Puritans 300 years ago, in their violent reaction against Roman Catholicism, decided that there shouldn't be a service at all in connection with marriage. Marriage, they said, is nothing but a legal contract. Now, we understand their reaction very well, and we're in deep and great sympathy with it. The Roman Church had taught such a false and unbiblical view of marriage. The Puritans felt they must get far, as far away as they could from that, so they ceased to have a service at all. But surely, in the light of the Apostles' teaching here, that was quite wrong. It was a violent reaction, so violent that it became unscriptural. Oh, no, there are aspects of this which demand a service, the teaching and the understanding of this particular scripture and others. And after all, as the teaching is that it, it is something comparable to the mystical union which is between Christ and his church, well, that, I say, is an occasion for worship and for a truly Christian service. Marriage is not merely a legal contract. And we must be very careful, as I've been pointing out recently, that we don't allow people whom we think are wrong to govern our thinking and our behavior. The Christian must never just be a reaction against anything. He must be positive. He must be scriptural. But there are some people who, in their hatred of Roman Catholicism, 
goes so far to the other side, I say they end by denying the very scriptures that they claim to uphold. But uh, let us go on to say this, that while the Christian view of marriage immediately suggests those three things to us, it does not here nor anywhere else teach, as the Roman Catholics do teach, that marriage is a sacrament. There is no teaching whatsoever anywhere in the Bible to support that. I defy anybody to produce such a scripture. It is not a sacrament. Well, what is its teaching? The teaching is the one that is given here. It is this whole idea of the mystical union. The relationship between husband and wife and wife and husband is comparable to that between Christ and the church and the church and Christ. Well, the apostle for our comfort says later on this is a great mystery, and it is. The relationship between Christ and the church is a mystery. It's a fact. But it is a great mystery, this mystical union between the church and Christ and the individual believer and Christ. But it's a fact and I must increasingly try to understand it. Now, he says, the relationship between husband and wife and wife and husband is comparable to that. It's in that order. That's the way that you must begin to think of it. So that here I say we are introduced to the realm of this high doctrine concerning the Christian church. Now, the apostle, of course, because of his wonderfully logical method, when he says that here in chapter 5, he knows that there should be no difficulty about it in, these, in the minds of these Ephesians, because he's already been telling them about that very thing. He did so in chapter 1, where he prays at the end that they might know the exceeding greatness of God's power toward them. He says it's the power manifested in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. You see, there he'd introduced them to it. Here he's only applying it. That's why uh, people who rush to the end of an epistle without reading the beginning are always in error. These are deductions that we have here. Then you remember he did the same thing and added a little bit more to the definition in chapter 4 in verses 15 and 16. He says, uh, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now, we spent some time in dealing with that statement when we were dealing with chapter 4. And, of course, we now draw upon that. What we saw as the teaching then, we now draw upon in order that we may understand the true nature of Christian marriage. Well, what is the point? Well, it's essentially this. He is uh, emphasizing this organic, this vital union, this intimate relationship. You remember those bands of supply that he told us about? Those sheaths, as it were, which took the, the nerves and the arteries. They were bringing sustenance from the head and from the center. And it goes to every part, howsoever small it may be. That's it. This vital organic union. Now, that's the life of husband and wife. It's one life. And it is one life in the same way as the life of the body 
one in the same way as is the life of the church in her relationship to the head, which is Christ. Now, here, of course, he is particularly interested in one aspect of all that. And the aspect is that of dependence. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as uh, unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, he's dealing with this aspect of dependence and of submission. And he introduces this further element in order that we may have a clear understanding of how it comes in and why it comes in inevitably. Later on, he will tell us of the other side of it, the husband with respect to the wife. Now, let's look at this great statement. As we do so, we are confronted at once by a problem. Listen to it again. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and listen, and he is the savior of the body. Now there's the problem. The problem that engages so much of the attention in the time of the commentators. And of course they're quite right. Here it is. Why did the apostle add this? Why didn't he say the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church? Therefore as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Why did he add, and he is the savior of the body? Now then, there are those, and they are in the majority, and they include great names like Charles Hodge and others, who do not hesitate to say at this point that this is a pure independent addition. That uh, what the apostle is referring to when he says he is the savior of the body is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ as the savior of the church. And they go on to say that this has nothing to do with the husband. Well, why did Paul say it then? Well, they say he said it for this reason. He had committed himself to this, that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And the very mention of the name Christ makes him blurted out, and he is the savior of the body. Uh, nothing to do with what he was arguing at the moment, but the very mention of the name of Christ makes him say this wonderful thing. So they argue that this is an independent phrase, that it does not apply to the husband's relationship to the wife. And uh, their, argument, their arguments are these. They say, it's obviously that. They say, can you say that the husband is the savior of his wife as Christ is the savior of the church? They say, it's monstrous. Christ, we know, died for the church. He saves us by his atoning death and by his resurrection. But you can't say that about any other relationship. It's quite unique. The apostle just was carried away by the depth of his feeling and puts in this independent phrase which obviously has got nothing to do with the husband-wife relationship. Now then, what do we say with respect to this? Well, we have to grant, of course, that if you read a statement like this cursorily and without examining it carefully, you'd have to agree with that. There is no need to argue about this. The Christ as saviour of the church in that sense is unique and obviously doesn't apply to the husband. But that is not the whole of the statement. 
they have a, a further argument to which they attach very great importance. And it is the word translated here, therefore, at the beginning of verse 24. You notice the first word in verse 24 is, therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And the point they make here is this. They say this translation, therefore, is quite wrong. And indeed, they are perfectly right in saying that. But they then go on and say this, that the word here, which is translated as therefore, should in reality be translated as nevertheless, that it is a word of contrast and that it always means a contrast. So they say you should read it like this. Therefore, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body, nevertheless, Though that is not true of the husband with respect to the wife, in spite of that, nevertheless, let the wife be subject to their own husbands in everything. And so they feel that the case is indeed quite unanswerable, that the apostle himself tells us. Now, I, when I said that he is the saviour of the body, of course, I'd forgotten for the, for, for the moment uh, my analogy between the uh, relationship of Christ and the church and the husband and the wife. Nevertheless, in spite of that, though that isn't true in the realm of husband and wife, in spite of that, uh, the wives should still uh, submit themselves to their own husbands even as the church is subject unto Christ. Now then, what of this? Uh, well, it seems to me that uh, there is an adequate answer to all that argumentation. And the first is, of course, that it confines the meaning of the word saviour. The word saviour doesn't always carry that one meaning of Christ giving his life for the church and his blood being shed. It's the common meaning, but it isn't the only one. There is a wider meaning to this term saviour. Let me give you an example of it in the first epistle to Timothy, chapter 4 and in verse 10. For therefore, says the apostle, we both labour and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the saviour of all men, especially of those that believe. Now, that's exactly the same word as is used here about the Savior of the body. There we are told that God, the living God, is the Savior of all men, especially of them that believe. Well, you don't want to say for a moment, do you, that God saves everybody. You're not universalists. Of course not. Well, then it means that the word Savior there is a different connotation. And what it means there, of course, is preserver that he looks after, that he cares for. He is the preserver of all men, especially them that believe. There are the ones that are saved, but God, why, as we are reminded by our Lord, he causes the sun to rise upon the evil and the good and sends his rain upon the just and upon the unjust, yes, and gives food to all. It's there he is the savior of all men. So, why not use that meaning to the word savior here? He is the preserver of the body. He is the one who looks after and safeguards the body. 
So there is one reason at dinner it which we can put up against the argument, but I have further reasons for rejecting that exposition that would confine this phrase solely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving work. My second reason is this. I would argue that verses 28 and 29, which are to follow, insist upon our interpreting this phrase with respect to the husband and wife as well as to Christ and the church. Listen to these verses. So he says ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh. Well, what does he do? Well, he nourisheth and cherisheth it. Yes, he's acting as a savior to it. He's looking after it. He is preserving it. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord of the church. Even as the Lord nourisheth and cherisheth the church, which is his body, so, he says, the husband ought to deal with his wife as his own flesh, his own body. He doesn't neglect his own body. No, he nourisheth it and cherisheth it. In other words, he is the savior of the body. How important it is to take a verse always in its context. You see, even the mighty can fall at this point. I argue that those two verses insist upon this other interpretation here, that this is not an isolated, independent phrase, true only of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is still talking about husbands and wives. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. It's true of both. But what of your word, uh, uh, which is translated, therefore, says somebody at the beginning of verse 24. Now, this is to me really interesting. I've gone to the trouble of turning up some of the best lexicons in this. It is a Greek word, Allah. And I find that it need not at all be uh, translated always as a kind of antithesis or something which is uh, an opposite and a contrast. Take, for instance, the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and the other early Christian literature. The latest edition, 1952, by Dr. Arndt and another collaborator, one of the best and most authoritative. They actually say this, that what it really means is now or then. And I quote them, they say it is used to strengthen the command. Not to imply a contrast or a difference, but to strengthen the very command that he's giving. And they actually pick out Ephesians 5.24 as an illustration of that particular use of this word. And Grimm there, likewise, has a similar statement. So that it seems to me that on all these counts, we must uh, reject that uh, interpretation which says that this is an independent phrase referring only to the Lord. Indeed, if it were that, it would be quite pointless at this point. It would be sheer confusion. And the apostle is not giving, given uh, to doing that kind of thing. So what we read is, therefore, as Christ is the, that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Now then, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Very well. What's the doctrine? The doctrine is clearly this. The wife is the one, and she must realize this, who is kept, preserved, guarded, shielded, provided for by the husband. 
That's the relationship. As Christ nourisheth and cherisheth the church, so the husband does to the wife, and the wife should realize that that is her position in this whole relationship. The husband is the preserver, he is the savior of the body. Well, very well then, the wife should start with this idea, and she should always act in the light of this. But we can go further. What is the relationship of uh, the body to the head? Now, this is true, of course, of the church to Christ, and therefore it is true of the wife to the husband. But let's take the illustration that he uses here and in the previous instances I've given you. And you know, this is his favorite illustration about the church. The church is the body of Christ. Read 1 Corinthians 12 again. Read Romans 12. Uh, there it is. He, he uses it everywhere. Now, what, what is the notion? The wife to the husband is what the body is to the head, what the church is to Christ. Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's the idea of the compliment again. You see, the Christian notion of marriage is this idea of wholeness, completeness. We had it, of course, away back in Genesis 2. Help meet. Someone taken out of Adam, a part of him, yes, but complimenting him, making up a kind of wholeness. That's the very idea that you think of inevitably as you think of your body. The body is a whole. I've put this before in working it out in terms of the church. The body is not a collection of parts. A body isn't a number of fingers and hands and feet and toes stuck on and limbs loosely attached together. No, no, that's a completely false notion of the body. It's an organic, vital unity. It's one, it's whole. That's the whole notion. Now then, that is the very notion that comes in here. So that husband and wife are not separate. They're not like two kingdoms uh, having diplomatic relationships and there's a tension and always the danger of a quarrel. It's already wrong. You've lost the notion, the Christian notion of what a marriage really is. You're one. As Christ and the church are one. As the, the body and the head are one. Now, you see, it allows for differing functions. And that's the thing to grasp. Differing functions, different purposes, special duties that only one part can perform. Yes, but the whole is corporate. It's all a unified action. It is all leading to a corporate result. But let me work it out a little bit more in detail in order to try to enlighten this question of the marriage state and relationship. And oh, how important all this is. I gave you some reasons for that at the end last Sunday morning. And you know, I believe a lot of the irreligion of today is partly a reaction, as I said, against that Victorianism in which so many husbands and wives appear to be great Christians, but people said, if you only knew them in their private life. That's the sort of thing that does harm to Christianity. When a man is not the same at home as he is in the church, or out on the street, or in his office, it's in the home you really know a man. What are the relationships there? Well, now then, these things are important for that reason. Not in and of themselves, but a part of our great testimony. What then does this teach us about uh, the uh, relationship of the wife to the husband in this matter of subjecting herself? Well, it seems clear to me that it doesn't teach a mere and a sheer passivity. The wife isn't to be entirely passive. It's a misinterpretation of this picture to say that the wife should never speak, never give an opinion, be mute or dumb and utterly passive. 
That's a, a pressing of an analogy and an illustration to a point in which it becomes meaningless. No, but what it does mean is this. The wife should never be guilty of independent action. You see, the analogy of the body and the head produces that. You may recall that in preaching on Ephesians 4.16, I made that point. Now, the business of my body is not to act independently of me. It is I who decide to act with my mind and brain and will, and then my body is the means through which I express it. If my body begins to act apart from me, well, I'm suffering from some sort of convulsions. That is exactly what convulsions mean. That the parts of a man's body are moving in an irrational manner. It's not purposeful. He doesn't want them to. He can't stop them. They're acting apart from him. That is chaos. That is, I say, convulsions. Now then, here's the analogy, you see. Uh, wives, submit yourselves and your own husbands. Be uh, subject and obedient to them in everything. Why? Well, because as wife and in this relationship, you don't act independently of your husband. That's chaos. That's convulsions. Or well, let me divide it up still more. The wife must not act before the husband. All the teaching indicates that he is the head and he ultimately controls. So she not only doesn't act independently of him, she doesn't act before him. But let me emphasize this also. As it is true to say that she must not act before him, it is equally true to say that she must not delay action. She mustn't stall action. She mustn't refuse to act. Go back to that analogy again. Here's somebody who's had a stroke. This person wants to act, but the, the, the limb is paralyzed. It can't, though the person's willing movement, there is no movement. The arm is not healthy. It restricts movement. It hinders movement. Now, you see, this is a part of the teaching. The subjection, you see, involves that idea that she doesn't act before her husband. She doesn't delay. She doesn't hinder action. She doesn't paralyze action. Don't you see that these points are all vital in this whole relationship of marriage and it's because people don't realize and know things like this that marriage is breaking down as it is round and about us. This independence, this acting before, this not acting, stalling, refusing, breaking. And it's all wrong. It's because they don't understand this Christian notion of marriage. Well, for me to sum it up, let me put it like this. You see, the teaching is that the initiative and the leadership are ultimately the husbands, but action is always coordinated. That's the meaning of this picture. Coordinated action, but leadership in the head. Now, there is no sense of inferiority suggested by this. The wife is not inferior to her husband. She's different. She has her own peculiar position, full of honor and respect. That's why the man is later to be told to cherish and to nourish and to love and to care for, of course, and to respect and honor, certainly. There's no inferiority involved. What he's teaching is this, you see, that any Christian woman who realizes all this will live to please her husband, to be useful to him, to help him, to aid him, to enable him to function. She will not cavil at saying and obey in the marriage service. What a tragic thing this is. I was told by a friend only within the last fortnight that the very clergyman who was going to take the marriage had said that he wouldn't have the word obey. 
You see, he thinks he's being modern. He thinks he's appealing to the men in the street. After all, Christianity is not narrow. It's not too bad. He didn't realize he was denying this very doctrine. And how utterly inconsistent people are. Such a man, I suppose, if he was in a football team, would boast of the fact it's marvelous, the team spirit, you see. Though we are all playing together and we've all got ability, we start off by saying, now then, there's one man who's captain. I'm not the captain. I'm submitting myself to the captain. That's marvelous, the team spirit. He's going to obey the captain. Oh, but you mustn't say it with regard to marriage. That's derogatory to woman. That's old-fashioned. That's Paul. That hard Pharisee, that legalist. That's the Old Testament. No, no. You see, oh, how wonderful Christianity is. Come to the church. And he denies the whole of the doctrine and is inconsistent with his own supposed modernity. The Christian wife, understanding these things, wants to say and obey, to love, cherish, and to obey, of course. Why is she getting married? Isn't it in order to complete this? Isn't it in order to have this coordinated action, this perfection, which is to be demonstrated to the world? That's not slavery. That is living as the church does to our Lord. That is manifesting the essential spirit of Christianity. But let me say a final word. Did you notice that the end of the exhortation was this? Therefore, then, now then, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Everything. What of this? Does it mean that? Here, of course, we answer in terms of the analogy of Scripture everywhere. When Scripture makes a sweeping general statement like that, it always expects us to take it all in the light of its own teaching. So when we read here that the wife is to be subject to her own husband in everything, it's exactly the same as the Christian is still to be subject to the state and to the powers that be in Romans 13 and in other places. Does it mean then that uh, the wife has to do literally everything her husband says to her in all circumstances and conditions? Of course it doesn't. That would be to make the scripture ridiculous. There are qualifications here. What are they? Well, here's one. It is a fundamental rule of the scripture that nobody should ever act against his or her conscience. And this exhortation doesn't tell a wife that she's got to act against her own conscience. No, no. It is within the conjugal relation. It is within the terms of marriage. The husband has no right to dictate to a wife's conscience. Certainly not. But here we again uh, might cite a number of very interesting cases. I think there's a great deal of confusion sometimes between obeying conscience and holding on to an opinion. They're not the same thing. I am saying that the scripture always exhorts us to obey our conscience in all circumstances. But that isn't always the same as holding on to your own opinion. Now, there is one illustration I can give you of this. I remember reading in that book on Scottish theology by Dr. John MacLeod. A very interesting case that touches this very point. There was a dispute in the 18th century over uh, the relationship of the Christian to the uh, 
local government and part of the church divided into two sections known as the burger and the anti-burger sections. And this was a matter of great controversy. There was a minister of the name of James Scott. He had a very remarkable wife whose name was Alison. She was the daughter of a, a very remarkable man called Ebenezer Erskine, one of the founders of the original secession church in Scotland. A very strong character, the wife of a very great and a very able man. Well, now Mr. Scott and his wife disagreed at this point. Mr. Scott was belonged to the anti-Burger Party. Mrs. Scott belonged to the Burger Party. Well, there was a case involved. And Mr. Scott was in a presbytery which actually reprimanded and chastised his wife's father. A very courageous act on his part. But he was on the side that chastised and reprimanded his own father-in-law and others. And then, of course, having done that in the presbytery, he had to go home and tell his wife what he'd done. And when he had told his wife what he had done, Alison Scott made that famous statement. She said, James Scott, you are still my husband, but you are no longer my minister. And she put that into practice, so that as every Sunday came, she didn't go and worship in the church where her own husband was leading the service and preaching. She went to one of the burger churches. Now, what do you make of a case like that? Well, I wouldn't hesitate to say that Alison Scott was entirely wrong. She was putting opinion in the place of conscience. There, surely, is an instance where she should have submitted. For every reason to the leading and the guidance of her husband. She wasn't violating her conscience here. It was a pure matter of opinion. We must never, I say, make the mistake of confusing conscience and opinion. You give your opinion, but when you see that the husband is thus determined, you abide by it. Then let me give you one other illustration to counterbalance this. One of the most remarkable and moving experiences I've ever had since I've been the minister of this church Happened some 18 months ago, if I remember rightly. I was preaching here on my first Sunday night after I had come back from my summer vacation. And on the text, ye are ambassadors, we are ambassadors for Christ. And uh, emphasizing the aspect of the call of the ambassador and so on. I went out of the pulpit into my room and a lady was ushered in immediately, obviously in a state of agitation. And all she had to tell me was this, that she was quite certain that that sermon had been preached for her. She and her husband had been married, I think, for some ten years, and he'd been feeling that he'd been called to the ministry. He was giving up his work as a school teacher. She didn't agree at all. She'd done everything she could to hinder her husband. But still the husband was certain and was going forward. And there was a crisis, as it were. But in that service, that woman had been deeply convicted about this point and just came in to confess it to me, and was rushing immediately to the nearest telephone to phone her husband, who was down in the West Country, and who had to sit an examination for entrance into the ministry the very next morning. She saw how wrong she was to stand like this on her opinion, and thus to thwart God's purpose in her husband's life. Now that, you see, is not conscience. That's standing on an opinion. I say we should never violate conscience, but I do say that we must be ready to submit 
in this respect in the matter of opinion. Very well, then, there's the first. The wife does not carry this to the extent of going against her conscience. Neither must she allow her husband to make her commit sin. If the husband is trying to get the wife to commit sin, she says, no. That is, again, I say, to make the scripture ridiculous. Should the husband lose his mental balance and become insane, obviously she's not to obey him in everything. The scripture is never ridiculous. The scripture carries its own meaning with it, and there are these inevitable limits. In other words, the fourth point I would make is this. The wife doesn't submit to the husband to the extent of allowing him to interfere with her relationship to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. No, no. She'll do everything short of that, but not that. And fifthly, adultery, adultery breaks the married relationship. And if the husband has been guilty of adultery, the wife is no longer bound to give him obedience in everything. She can divorce him. She's allowed to do so by the scripture. And she is entitled to do so. Because adultery breaks the unity, breaks the relationship. They're separate. They're no longer one. He's broken it. He's gone out of it. So that we must not interpret this scripture as teaching that the wife is thus irretrievably, inevitably bound to an adulterous husband for the rest of her life. She may choose to be. That's for her to decide. All I'm saying is that this scripture doesn't command it. It doesn't make it inevitable. In other words, there are these limits to these matters. Now then, there, as I see it, are the main deductions from this wonderful illustration. The big thing that is emphasized is this that the wife must go to the extremest limit in this matter of submitting herself to her own husband for Christ's sake, for the reasons given, short of violating the principles which we've just been laying down. And if I'm speaking to any wife who's in trouble on this matter, let me suggest certain practical helps to you. If you're in trouble, ask, yourselves, ask yourself the following question. Why did I originally marry this man? What was it then? Can't that be restored? Try to recapture that in the spirit of Christ and the gospel. Ah, but you say it's impossible. I can't. Well, then I say as a Christian, feel sorry for the man. Pray for him. And put into practice the teaching of the Apostle Peter in First Epistle, chapter 3, where you remember he puts it so plainly to us, where he tells the wives to subject themselves, he says, not only to those who are kind and so on, he says, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Try and put all that into practice. Try in humility and meekness to win your husband, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold and of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great Do all you can 
go to the limit, go beyond the limit, short of these principles. And finally, ask yourself this question. Can I honestly go in my present attitude and condition into the presence of the Lord who in spite of me and my vileness and my sinfulness came from heaven and went to the cross of Calvary and gave himself and his life for me. If you can face him, all is well. I have nothing to say. But if you feel condemned in his presence about your attitude, about your relationship in any respect, go and put it right. So that when you do go back to him again, it will be with a quiet conscience, an open spirit, and you are able to rejoice in his holy presence. This is a Christian matter. It's like the relationship of the church to Christ, the body to the head. And as long as we look at it, at it in those terms, there are no problems. It's a great privilege. It is something which God looks down upon with pleasure and with delight. Wives, submit to yourselves. A meek and a quiet spirit are in the sight of God of great price. And however much you may have to suffer here, your reward in heaven will be very great. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.